Uh, Brothers and sisters, it's good to be with you today. Just to introduce myself very briefly, I'm Arthur uh, Rankin. I'm an assistant pastor at Sovereign Grace Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, I graduated from RTS Charlotte, but before that I was uh, a student who graduated from uh, Texas A&M University. Uh, So don't hold that against me if you're not an Aggie, but if you're an Aggie, it's good to be back in the home country. Uh, I'm so privileged to be here with you today and worshiping with you and uh, preaching to you today. I was very uh, honored that Pastor Richard Harris uh, asked me to preach today. Uh, It's good to be with this congregation. I married uh, one of the members of this congregation. I married Anna Pendergrass, and I was actually married in the chapel right over here. I've had the privilege of enjoying this congregation as I've attended a number of times. Uh, And the thing I respect most about this congregation is its Christian patience. Uh, Pastor Harris is quite wonderful. He's very skilled in a great many ways. He's also a Georgia Bulldog, and uh, many congregations would have a problem with that, but I'm just so impressed none of you do, so thank you so much. Anyway, if you would, open up your Bibles with me and turn with me uh, to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 110. We'll be looking at Psalm 110 today. Hear now the Word of God. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has spoken and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fall. The Word of our God stands forever. Let us now pray. O most gracious Lord, Lord, we are so thankful for Your Word. For Lord, it is sharper than any two-edged sword and cuts uh, not just bone and marrow, but into our very souls. Lord, we ask now that You would use it, use it as a scalpel upon us. Conform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, may our restless hearts find their rest in You this day. And speak, Lord, for Your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Between 1971 and 1973, uh, President Richard Nixon operated a tape recording system inside the White House, uh, which resulted in what we now call the Nixon tapes. And for the most part, Nixon only knew, was the only one who actually knew that system was operating, and he intended to keep it that way. Now, of course, uh, that didn't stay that way. Uh, these recordings eventually came to light during the Watergate Commission and led to a move to impeach Nixon, and it led to his subsequent uh, resignation. But you can still listen to over 3,000 hours of those Nixon tapes today. They're still available. They're online. 
and you can go whenever you want and just click on one and just hear all of it. And what makes listening to these recordings so fascinating is that they give you an inside glimpse at what candid conversations look like between the most important people. You get to listen to Nixon and his closest advisors discuss foreign policy with the Soviet Union, with China, their election strategy, the Vietnam War, the biggest issues of the day, right there at your fingertips. And that's a type of access that many of us here today can only imagine. We're never going to have that kind of access. You know, you're a fly on the wall for the most important people discussing the most important of topics. But that kind of access is how I want you to think about our passage here today. This passage gives us access and allows us to listen in on a conversation. But it is a far greater access and it is a far greater conversation than anything you'll ever find in the Nixon tapes. What we are looking at here is David's report of what's happening, not in the White House, but in the throne room of God. And it's a conversation that's taking place between God the Father and God the Son. And that is a privilege for us to be able to read and hear today, this Lord's Day. Now that's a pretty dramatic claim. The idea that this is God the Father and God the, God the Son speaking to each other. But that's actually what Jesus says about this passage. He says you can't get out of the first verse without coming face to face with that claim. This is one of Jesus' favorite chapters, favorite psalms in all the scriptures. It's his go-to passage for stumping the Pharisees. You know, he asked them, who is this second Lord in Psalm 110? And how is this second Lord not just David's son, but David's Lord? Everyone understands who the first Lord in Psalm 110 is. It's God. You know, if you look in your Bibles, the Lord there is in all caps. And the reason for that is because the Hebrew word there is Yahweh. That's the covenantal name of God. But the second Lord, the Lord that comes right after the Lord in all caps, that is the Messiah. Everyone understood that this was David's son. But here, David calls him his Lord. How can a son possibly be greater than, than, his father, than his father. That doesn't make sense. That's a very simple, straightforward question, but the Pharisees were absolutely stumped by it. And the reason Jesus asked that question is because he is the answer. He was the one who both knit together David in his mother's womb and was born from the line of David, both at the exact same time. And the marvelous thing about this passage is that we get to see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Lord of David being spoken to by his heavenly Father. That is a privilege for us to be able to enjoy here this Lord's day. And we see this exact same claim in Acts chapter 2. We see it specifically in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 to 36, which says this, For David did not ascend into the heavens... But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now what's happening there? In these verses, Peter is preaching the greatest sermon of his life. He is preaching right after Pentecost, right after the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles like a tongue of fire. He goes out into the streets and he preaches a sermon, a sermon that's going to result in the conversion of 3,000 people. And what is the very climax of that entire sermon? It's him citing Psalm 110. And it's him saying that it is Jesus. Jesus who ascended into heaven, not David. Jesus who sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That is both when and where this psalm has its fulfillment. And the reason I'm trying to hammer this home time after time is because the Bible itself hammers it home. This passage, this psalm, is not just one of Jesus' most favorite passages. This is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. It gets quoted time after time after time. And the reason things get quoted, oh, time after time, is because they're, they're important. And you're supposed to understand them. And so we need to wrestle with the claims of this psalm. This psalm that contains so much for us about who Jesus is. And so as we go through this passage today, I'm going to have three simple points. Christ is king. Christ is priest, and Christ is victorious. But first, let's look at the first three verses. And here, in these first three verses, I want you to see that Christ is king. Notice that in these verses, Jesus has everything that a king has. Look at verse 1. It says, sit at my right hand. Jesus is in heaven, and his Father is telling him to sit at his right hand. And what is at God's right hand? A throne. Jesus is being placed upon a heavenly throne at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now let's look at verse 2. The Lord, all caps, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Jesus is on a throne in heaven, but he also has a scepter. It's a symbol of his rule, power, and authority. And who's sending it forth? It's God. God is the one who sends forth this scepter from Zion so that everyone in all the earth comes face to face with it. Everyone will see it. Everyone will recognize it. And then finally, let's look in verse 3. Jesus has a throne. Jesus has a scepter, but he has a people as well. You can't be a king and not have someone to rule over. And Jesus has a people, a people that freely offers themselves for service to their king. Now, Jesus is a king, and I want you to notice how firmly established his kingship is. There is no one who can stand against him, because he is enthroned by God himself. It is God who places Jesus Christ upon the throne of heaven. It is God who guarantees that the scepter will come forth from Zion. It is God who says, I will give you a people who will freely offer themselves to you. It is me. I am the one who will give you these things. This psalm is a dramatic fulfillment 
of 2 Samuel 7. And what is 2 Samuel 7? 2 Samuel 7 is the Davidic covenant. And it's the most important passage in Scripture that almost, that very few of you actually instinctively know off the top of your heads. So much of the Old Testament revolves around what's happening in 2 Samuel 7 with the Davidic covenant and how it's established there. Because there, in that passage, God is promising to establish one of David's descendants forever. And He promises to be a father. And He promises to place His love upon this descendant for all time. And here in Psalm 110, we get to see what that means. We get to see how God is establishing a kingdom. And it means He gives the king everything. He makes sure that this kingdom is firmly established so that not one of His enemies can possibly touch His anointed one. I want you to think about all the enemies of God. Everything that comes to mind. I want you to realize that there's nothing they can do. They can try to scream against God. They can try to throw Jesus off His throne, but it will never happen. Christ is secure at the right hand of God the Father. They can only mock Him in the feeblest of ways, but King Jesus is still upon His throne. He is established forever as King. This kingdom is established so firmly that something very offhandedly is said in verse 2. It says this, rule in the midst of your enemies. Realize what's being said there. It's what's saying, what's happening there is Jesus will have enemies. Jesus will have enemies that will resist him, but it's not going to matter. Jesus will still rule. He will still rule moment by moment over everyone and everything. Their opposition is not the slightest threat to His kingship. He is still in control of everything. Not just in the future, but right now as we speak. Jesus Christ is King. And He still rules. His enemies are still ruled by Him. I want you to think just how exhausting and demoralizing it must be to be Satan. Satan has the worst job in all the world because he can try to do anything he wants. He can try to come up with the most horrible, evil, cunning plans imaginable, but he still understands it's not going to change a thing. Whatever he does, Christ will still get the glory. Whatever he does, Christ will still be king. And it will not change to the slightest degree for the slightest moment, no matter how much he tries. I love the quote from Martin Luther. Even the devil is God's devil. And that's a true quote. Even Satan is ruled over by God and Jesus Christ. And so are all of us today and everyone you will ever meet. We are all ruled by King Jesus that is something that is incredibly demoralizing for Satan. But it is an incredible encouragement to us. Because no matter what happens, you get to say, Jesus Christ, the Almighty, reigns. Every moment of every day. And is that sometimes hard to confess? Absolutely. But it is still true. And we serve a king 
who is so powerful that he will use even our grief for both his glory and our good. Not a single thing, not even an evil thing, will not be turned to good by our king. And so when you face a trial or tribulation, you need to understand that Jesus still rules even though you may not see it. He still rules despite his enemies. The plan has not changed. The plan has not changed for over 3,000 years since this psalm was written, and it never needs to. Jesus Christ is still king, and all is under him. This incredible power and this incredible authority that can work all things, even evil for good, is why a people freely offer themselves to Jesus Christ in verse 3. Now, you may not realize this, but this verse, verse 3, is one of the most hotly debated passages in all of Scripture. It is incredibly difficult to translate. And if you would, look at your Bibles. There's three footnotes there. One footnote after another that offer alternative translations. You almost never see this. The final footnote in your ESV just says, the meaning of the Hebrew is unclear, which is an academic basically putting up the shrug emoji. It's completely unhelpful. All right? It's really irritating. But it's like the language that David's using is so high, so wonderful, so over the top, that gravity and grammar kind of fall away. It's just too wonderful. And it's kind of hard to translate here. This is a debated passage, but here's what I think it means. Jesus' people will rise up, and they will freely offer themselves for battle. Just like the dew, they're going to rise up over everywhere, and there's going to be from every tribe and tongue and nation, and they will arise in a sight that is both beautiful because they are clothed in holy garments, but also a testimony of the power of Jesus Christ, a testimony of His youthful strength. And this army is going to offer itself to its king for service on the day of battle. Brothers and sisters, when you read that verse of a people freely offering themselves, you need to understand that's you. That's where you are in this psalm. You are the people of Christ who freely offer themselves. You are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and it is your duty to stand up and fight the spiritual fight that is before you. When you fight a temptation, you fight it as one of the people of God. And when you triumph over a temptation, you are a testimony of Christ's strength. He changes us. He works in our hearts. And everyone should see it. If you want to see the kingship of Christ, the place you need to go to is the church. That's where you should go. Because it is in the church that we get to see the Spirit move most clearly. Because we are here today, the assembled people of God. It is in, a, in the church, especially the church in a closed, persecuting nation, that we get to see what it means for King Jesus to rule in the midst of his enemies. It doesn't matter what a persecuting nation does. It will still be used to the glory 
of our King every moment of every day. Let's move forward to verse 4. Christ is king, but he's also a priest. Christ is a priest. Now, the most unusual thing about this passage is really the last verse, last word here in verse 4, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a really, really bizarre and strange character. He appears once in Genesis 14 where he is the king and priest of Salem. He shows up out of nowhere. He appears out of nowhere again in Psalm 110, and then he appears a bunch in the book of Hebrews. And he's just this odd fellow. He pops up out of nowhere, and he's this king and priest, both one and the same, all at the same time. You don't know where he's from. You don't know what his lineage is. You don't know very much about him, and that's actually the entire point. You're confused by Melchizedek because you're supposed to be confused by Melchizedek. When you, you need to understand, the early church, when they came across Melchizedek, they thought he was Jesus. They looked at him and they said, this can only be Jesus, and they thought he, this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus walking the earth. I disagree with that, but I think it's a very pious mistake. You're supposed to make that connection. Because it is Jesus Christ who comes as the true fulfillment of everything Melchizedek is. Melchizedek is the perfect picture of what Jesus Christ will be. Just as Melchizedek is a king and a priest, so too is Jesus Christ. Just as Melchizedek is the king of righteousness, with his very name, that's what it means, king of righteousness, so too is Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus Christ, just as Melchizedek just appears out of nowhere without any mother or father, so too does Jesus. Even though he has a mother, he has a mother, Mary. He is the one who is eternally begotten of the Father before all worlds so that he even knit together Mary in her mother's womb. That is a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. And it's something that the book of Hebrews loves to harp on time after time, chapter after chapter. It loves talking about Melchizedek. And if I can just summarize that book for you, the book of Hebrews, when it talks about Melchizedek, means this. It is not possible for you to have a better mediator than Jesus Christ. Something new has come. Something that the Levitical priesthood cannot possibly match. This is a new order, a new order of Melchizedek. What better mediator is there than the one who is eternally communed with God the Father and God the Spirit for all eternity? What better sacrifice for your sins can you ask for than the Son of God freely offering Himself in your place? And what better assurance can you have that the sacrifice of Jesus is accepted other than his father greeting him when he comes into heaven and says, you will have a priesthood. Sit down at my right hand. Your work is finished. Have you ever noticed that when you read through the book of Exodus and you get to the depths of Exodus, the part you really don't want to read, when it's talking about the tabernacle and how you construct the tabernacle chapter after chapter after chapter, that a chair is never mentioned It talks about everything except a chair. It goes into exhaustive detail about the curtains. 
It goes into detail about veils, about lampstands, tables, the Ark of the Covenant, altars, basins, forks, knives, cups, everything you can imagine, but not a single chair. Nowhere to be seen. And the reason for that is not because they had standing desks. It's because, it's because there was never a chance to sit down when you're working in the temple. If you're sitting down on the job, you are not doing your job properly. You hurry from task to task to task every moment of every day, keeping on doing the sacrifices moment by moment. But Jesus Christ, He is told He can sit down. Jesus Christ is an eternal priest, and He eternally sits because His sacrificial work is eternally finished. He is an enthroned king, but he is an enthroned priest. And he is established forever after the order of Melchizedek. He never stands again. He is established. And so when you sin, when you sin against God and you don't know what to do, you're, the answer, the only answer, is to come before God and ask for forgiveness. When you sin and you feel a guilt and you understand when, with that moment there is nothing you can do to remedy this, the answer is not to hide like Adam and Eve, even though that is what all of us instinctively feel. That is the reaction to sin. The answer is to come to Jesus. And when you come to Jesus, you understand that His blood is sufficient for you. His sacrifice is perfect. There is nothing else you need. No other sacrifice is necessary. His atonement is enough for you. I said earlier that the enemies of Jesus cannot remove Jesus from His throne. But brothers and sisters, the same is true for your sin. Your sin cannot make Jesus stand up again. Jesus has sat down. His work is finished. And if you have any doubt, if you say you don't understand my sin, I need something else, Jesus points you to verse 4. And he says, my father has spoken. He has said, I have sworn, and I will never change my mind. This work is done. And so at the right hand of God the Father sits power and also sits forgiveness. A king and a priest and it is upon our faith in a sitting Savior that we come before God today offering our praises, offering our prayers, and also confessing our sins. It is upon Jesus Christ who now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And if you come to Him, and if you kneel before His throne, you will have forgiveness, and you will be clothed in the white robes of the saints, washed in the blood of the Lamb. That is all you need. Because Jesus Christ is the perfect priest. Now finally, I want us to look at verses 5 to 7. Christ is king. Christ is priest. But in verses 5 to 7, we see Christ is victorious. In these three verses... The image here is of a dramatic battle and a rout. But I want you to think about who 
is doing all of this. Look at the constant drumbeat of he in these verses. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Who is this he? I want you to notice, the Lord in verse 5 is not in all caps. It's not the word Yahweh. But in isolation, this could be the Messiah, or it could actually be God. It's confusing, and it's very debated, and it's debated because it's confusing. And I think that's on purpose. Where you see the Messiah, you should expect to see God the Father. And where you see God the Father, you should expect to see God the Son. Where one works, the other works. And the kingdom is established in such a way that if you mess with one of them, you mess with both of them. And the war is won by both. It's hard to tell who is who. But really, it is ultimately King Jesus who lifts up his head. And he is firmly established at the end of the battle. He is firmly established by his Father. This is a vivid, visceral image of a battle. The enemies, all the, all the enemy kings, they're utterly wiped out in this battle. Their armies are destroyed, their bodies litter the ground, and then this, there's this massive rout that takes place. The chiefs scatter over all the earth. They're trying to run from the battle and hide. But this is not just a victory, it is a total victory. Because we see Jesus pursuing after the battle, and he's in a hot pursuit. He continually runs after his foes. He doesn't stop at Bucky's. He stops only at a brook that he comes across. He's going to catch up. He's not slacking off. He is going to make sure that the enemy is caught. This is, a, this is an image that many of us are really on one level very uncomfortable with. This is not the three verses that you really wake up with and you want to have embroidered in your home and put at the doorway. All right? Bodies littering the ground is not really the most wonderful thing for many of us to think about. Many of us don't like watching violence in movies. We don't want to have a battle. We don't want to be in a battle. We don't really want to talk about that. But I want you to understand this might be a weighty passage but it is a good one. It's good because of who is winning the battle. You know, it's one thing if an evil person wins a battle. It's another thing if God himself wins. If God wins over his enemies, that is a good thing. It is the triumph over, of good over evil. And here, we get to see God victorious. And we get to see Jesus victorious. And there is no one else that we should be so happy to win a battle other than God and Jesus Christ. That's who we should be excited by. We need to be thrilled to see Jesus Christ winning on the final day. This image, this image of Jesus Christ as a warrior in a battle, that's the same image that's talked about in the New Testament. Think about Revelation 19. Christ enters the marriage feast of a lamb. And what is he described as? He's described as walking in with a cloak dipped in blood after fighting. 
And that is a terrifying image. It's supposed to be terrifying, but it's also a good image. It's comforting. It's comforting for those who understand what true evil is. When you come face to face with true evil, you understand the desire for true justice. And true godly justice might be weighty, but it is always good. And it will be good on the final day. Now this description of victory in these three verses, this description is the most obvious conclusion to this psalm you can possibly imagine. You can get to these three verses from verse 1. It should not surprise a single person in this room. This is what making your enemies a footstool looks like. And this is what we should expect to see when Jesus Christ is firmly established on the final day. God has promised to establish the kingdom of His Son. And when God promises in verse 1 that the enemies of Christ will be destroyed, you can take that victory to the bank as soon as the words are from the mouth of God the Father. You understand this is certain. God has promised it. Christ will be victorious. Today I want you to take away one thing. It's really the main takeaway from this entire passage I want you to live with confidence and assurance. Brothers and sisters, you see further than your non-Christian neighbors. And so you should act differently. You should live differently. You see further than the best projections and prognostications in the business. And so you should live like it. You don't merely have a vague feeling about which way the winds of history will go and how things are going to finish. You know for certain because God has spoken. We're supposed to live differently because we can see further. And I don't want you to misunderstand what I mean when I say that. You can have confidence and assurance and still think the world is falling apart. You can have confidence and assurance and still recognize that your life is falling apart. That's perfectly fine. You can have confidence and assurance and even not really understand how is all this going to come together for good. But you still know it will. God will work it for good. Christ will be victorious. He may not have promised you an excellent 401k, but He has promised that on the final day, all will be made right. And Christ will be shown to rule over everyone and everything. Every just injustice is going to be righted so that it's like it never took place. That's what the kingdom of Christ will be like. No matter how dark it gets, Christians can still see the light at the end of the tunnel. We don't know precisely how far away the end of the tunnel is, but we always see the light there. There might be darkness between there, but you see the end. We believe in a God who has worked the end, but also works the means. He is in control of everything, and He knows how to get to the end. It's been the plan for 3,000 years. It's really been the plan since before time itself. Christ has always been in control. God has promised it, and He will do it.
And so we should live our lives with a quiet confidence that comes from who Christ is and what He has done and what He will do. All will be complete. The final day is coming. All shall soon bow before their King and call Him King. And whatever you face, nothing can challenge that fact. And you can hold on to it with complete confidence. What do you need to hold on to? Jesus Christ Himself. That's who you need every moment of every day. And it's who we rest in. We rest in the true priestly king who will be victorious. Let us pray. Most gracious and loving Father, Lord, we are thankful for this passage, and we are thankful that we get to see Jesus Christ enthroned, and we are thankful that we get to see Jesus Christ as priest. Lord, give us comfort. Help us to rest in the kingship of Christ. Help us to rest in the priesthood of Christ. And Lord, help us to long for the final day when all will be made right. May be made right. And help us to offer ourselves freely. Until that day, Lord, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.